Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation that we love to have about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And of course, that means we often end up having a conversation about hunger, poverty, homelessness, and social injustices. And we have a guest today who is uh, such an excellent person to be talking uh, with us about these issues. I've just read his book, which is riveting. I'm talking about David Ambrose, who wrote a book called A Place Called Home. A companion to homelessness, a companion to a lot of the crises in our society is our lack of empathy for people that are suffering with mental health issues. I think that goes to the root of what my family certainly suffered from, and we need to address it. David's got an amazing background. I'll just say a few things about it. Um, I've been attracted to his work because of his uh, effectiveness as a national poverty and child welfare and queer rights advocate. But he's also an Emmy-nominated producer. Uh, this memoir, A Place Called Home, as I say, is just riveting. You can't put it down. Uh, it's um, relevant, certainly, to our work at Share Our Strength. And David's currently head of community engagement uh, for, uh, I think, the Western United States for Amazon, uh, having previously led corporate social responsibility for the Walt Disney Company. Uh, it's an amazing career. It's an amazing journey. And it started with, I believe, 12 years of homelessness. So we've got a lot to talk about, David. Wow, I'm going to have you do my Tinder profile. That was very <laughs> effective and emotive. So I look forward to reaching out back to you later. Well, I, I don't know how you decide what to talk about first, but maybe let's you know kind of start at the at the beginning because um, you were homeless, uh, I believe, for close to a dozen years before you ended up in the yeah. in the foster system. Is is that right? Yeah, you know, people often ask me um, about normal, and and my normal was being born into homelessness with my mother and two siblings in New York City. There was there was no before. It was just a consistent day-to-day -day, uh, battle of survival and punctuated with uh, violence. But constantly, my companion was hunger. It was food, aside from shelter, was what was always on our collective mind. And in New York City in the 80s, if, if folks know, it was not the playground it is today. So very, um, I would say, challenging start to life but also one that taught me to be kind of the advocate that you mentioned on the front end of things that I've accomplished. Well, um, you mentioned growing up homeless in New York City, and I'll, I'm just going to, I told you I was going to do this. I've got your wonderful book in front of me, and uh, I was uh, caught up in it from the very first two words because they apply to our issue. Chapter one, uh, page three, I'm hungry. I've waited as long as I can, and now I scoot past my siblings to tug on my mother's jacket. She swats me away. Walk straight, mom commands, her voice deep and robotic, the voice of a stranger. If we stop talking, we will freeze to death. If, I'm sorry. If we stop walking, we will freeze to death. It's Christmas in Manhattan, and the Midtown department store windows glow, each one a framed fantasy. My neck swivels as I pass, entranced by the rich golds, reds, and greens. My eyes fix on a display with an electric train chugging in a circle around a tree. It weaves through snowy heaps of presents, some wrapped, some with pictures of toys on the outside. I'm only five, and all I know about Christmas is the stories I've heard at the churches where we go for free meals, and that in December, music drifts from the doorway of every store and their windows fill with magic. I want more than anything to get my hands on that train. 
you paint such a picture. I, I, I was right there with you, David. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've got a really a gift for painting a picture so that a reader who hasn't experienced what you've experienced can experience at least a, a version uh, of it. Uh, where, where did you learn to write? Where did that come from? Well, right there in the first 12 years of my life, you know, I learned to read and write basically at uh, New York City Public Libraries and different <laughs> Sunday school. My mother taught me to appreciate reading, even though we were homeless. But it was very rarely in school. And, and thank you for your compliment. What I wanted to do right from the beginning is start to help people redeploy an instinct that we have, that I believe we have, I know we have, which is empathy. I think we're all rather exhausted with uh, all that's going on in the news. And in that, we've forgotten our common humanity. And when I listen to the debate and discussion about hunger and homelessness in this country, it's with exhaustion. Folks are tired, and I profoundly understand that. But my family needs us to not be tired. There are 8.4 million children in poverty in this country today, and we can't be tired for them. And so I wanted you to join young Hugh, young David, as he began his life, because there's too many kids experiencing this today. And that's why I wanted to really situate you with that night, one of the first nights I, I remember so startlingly, because it was the first time I thought we might die. And that writing comes from a place of emotion and also desire to rekindle something, to re rekindle a flame that we all have as Americans, that we want to help each other. And you say it was the first time you thought you might die because of Cold, hunger, just the the circumstances you were in on that in that moment. Yeah, I would say, if, you know, if, pull back the lens, and it's really just the kind of not benign neglect of our country towards its most vulnerable. We we've hacked away at a social welfare safety net, and this is the result. My family might have died that night, and no one would have cared. There are too many families like mine today. I recently participated a couple days ago in the LA homelesses, excuse me, the LA homeless count, where we go out at night across three nights to count. And along with thousands of others, volunteers, we counted. And I saw my family again and again and again, or I saw my mom uh, devolving on the street for lack of mental health care. So I, I believe there's something in us as a country where we're better than this. We don't want this for people. So uh, hunger was my constant companion, became a refuge of sorts, and also my biggest challenge to overcome. 12 years is a, is a long time, obviously. Did it feel like one long year? Did it feel like 12 different years, if there is such a thing? Um, and, and for you, what was the what was the beginning of the path out of it? We're going to talk about what you're doing now and how you got there, but what, where did kind of like the, the ice break and you started to see a, a path out or did you? Well, to your first point, you know, 12, every day, this was my normal. So there wasn't, it wasn't a long time because that kind of, you know, bespeaks of a comparison. This was my normal. This was what we did. We, we, uh, curled up in different spaces, the Port Authority, the park, doorways, church places. Um, you know, we were cold. It was scary. There was a plague that was killing gay men and we didn't understand it. And they were all around us in the shelters, abandoned and and dying of a disease that we did not understand. 
and we were afraid of. And that was normal. This was just day to day. I barely went to school. I don't really remember school uh, with a few exceptions. So there was no longness to it. It was moments of anticipation of uh, something negative happening, something violent happening. It was always a matter of when something would happen, not if. But even amongst that, my family was incredibly close. We uh, loved and took care of each other to the best we could. And we were our unit. We traveled the streets and got each other's backs and made friendships that kind of were brief, but beautiful and powerful. We had adventures. I, I sometimes remind folks that, you know, not only do homeless people exist between their knees and their neck, having biological needs and functions, but they also experience joy and love and friendship. And my siblings and I had New York City as a playground with almost no rules. And as scary as it was, we also found adventure and developed a sibling relationship like very few that I've ever experienced throughout my life. When, to your second question, was there a moment, was there a kind of uh, a moment when things turned? Right there in that first chapter, I end with a question. And it's the answer to your question, which is my mother, from my earliest memory, as I write in that, that first chapter, my mom asked us, homeless in a shelter, almost having died of exposure, having not eaten in a very long time. My mom asked us, is this what you want? And I remember just from so far inside of my soul being like, no, I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to be sitting here in my own urine. I don't want to be starving. I don't want my brother and sister to basically be dying from hunger and exposure. And I want to help my mom. And I remember my mom asking me that, and it lit this idea that I had a choice. And it wasn't an easy choice, and it wasn't a one-and-done choice, but it was the first time I really thought that I didn't have to have this. And my mom is the person who lit that flame. And, I mean, gosh, that is so fascinating. And I guess I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, do you know why she said it at that moment? It sounds like she hadn't said it before. I don't know if she ever said it again. Um, what, what moved her to say something that she had to have known would move you? In our country, we are coming to terms with mental health. Too often, it's been um, a shame that we all don't talk about it. someone in our family member has issues or even ourselves. How few of us share that we're in therapy or on psychotropic meds or had to seek counseling at a moment of crisis in our lives. There is a deep and profound shame that we still have in this country and we need to come out. My mom had an ongoing and uh, worsening mental health uh, array of issues. But despite that, she knew she had to care for us imperfectly as she did. She knew she did. And at times, the voices and the issues and the fears that trapped my mother and have trapped for 80 years, the clouds would part just enough for what I call my real mom to emerge. And she was always there. And I think she mitigated the worst. But she emerged in that moment. And she was the mom that knew what to do and knew that this was not right. And she hugged us as often as the other moms hit us. My mom does not have personality disorder, in case folks are wondering. But that's how I always thought of it. You, you would find my mom in different mental states. And in this moment is the first time I remember this mom asking a question about the future, 
Because the future is a privilege. The future is something that I did not often think about. My future was the next maybe couple hours. So that my mom was asking us in the future, as vast and as unknowable as it is, is this what you want? I often was just thinking about the next meal, where we're going to sleep tonight. What is this growing on my skin? I had to think about immediacy and never about some sort of a theor- theoretical future. But my mom was always there. My mom has three children, my brother, sister, and I, with advanced degrees, with healthy, happy, thriving families. And the only common thing we have together is our upbringing and our mother. So she was always there. She did the best that she could. But a companion to homelessness, a companion to a lot of the crises in our society is our lack of empathy for people that are suffering with mental health issues. I often think of breast cancer, how for so long, too long, we barely talked about it. We thought it wasn't our problem if we were a male. And today it's so vastly different as it should be. I think we need the same with mental health. And I think that goes to the root of what my family certainly suffered from, and we need to address it. But uh, my mom is the person who lit this flame, and uh, the result is three kids that are doing really quite well in our, in our early middle age. And David, from the lighting of the flame to the doing well for all three of you, what, um, what, was, what was the rest of the path out? Like, how did, how did you do it? Yeah. Um, well, I have two thoughts. So first, I'll, I'll um, as they say in law school, fight the hypothetical. And second, then I'll answer the question. But, uh, you know, firstly, I often get asked, you know, what are the, how did you do it? And I kind of reject that question because the supposition or the idea that people have is if we can map out the success of this individual, we'll be able to duplicate it if not at scale, at least for more people. And the reality is, is I went through hell. Reality is I had so much violence done to me as a child that nobody should look at that as a pathway to produce a human uh, like myself. It is not acceptable what my siblings and I experienced for decades at the hands of adults and the indifference of the public. Not a pathway. There was no magical moment that came into my life. It was a decision every day not to be snuffed out by whatever force through neglect or action was trying to do that, be it a cruel, cruel foster parent, be it the state trying to cure me for being gay with very aggressive and violent therapy, be it graduating and emancipating again into homelessness. I, I don't think my pathway is a, uh, something we should duplicate, nor that of my brother and sister, both of whom struggled. That said, it was each other. It was my mother. It was our decision as a family that we wanted a different future. And it wasn't a one and done decision. We had to re-decide it and recommit to it all the time in the face of everything that was thrown at us. And what I ask people to do is not to model the system or systems on my experience, but instead to close their eyes and to imagine their child or their mother, or their loved one in foster care. What does that system look like? What does it look like? And if that's not what we have, that is the path that we need to create for our kids and our families that are struggling. You will not have healthy children if you don't have healthy families. Families cannot be good and healthy and thriving if they're starving or homeless. 
So that's the system. That's the answer that I ask people to create is re-believe in our collective ability to lift people up. And that is called government. That is called nonprofits. We can do this together. But what I went through is not a model for us to duplicate. And there was no magic moment when I pivoted. It was a decision I made as a young person with my family in a different way and then recommitted to it a million times. You spoke earlier of um, of young men dying of AIDS. And, um, and I was reading something that you wrote, I think maybe for... Uh, National Adoption Month, where you said, today, the same ignorance is affecting queer youth as they stream into foster care, homelessness, and in delinquency. Studies have identified that nearly 30% of youth in foster care are queer, nearly triple the population in the general public. The older the youth is, the harder it is to find adoptive parents. Um, a lot of times when people think about homelessness, they kind of generalize, but there's a, uh, it feels like there's a set of uh, specific and even more complex challenges uh, that face queer youth um, and that you experience those. What should we know about that? Yeah. When I, when I was young and I went into foster care and uh, you'll hear a bucket of emotion in my voice because it's still quite raw. Um, they diagnosed me as something they called gender identification disorder, GID, which is a legitimate diagnosis, but misapplied in many cases for young people in the system back when I was young. And what it really meant was that I was queer and that I could not be in a lot of foster homes because it was considered a very serious illness. So I went into a series of very violent placements that were not appropriate for someone like myself. And, uh, you know, uh, after many years and, and very inappropriate therapy that tried to make me less gay and violence of all types, I emerged and I am still very much a committed homosexual and happy and healthy and adjusted, but it took decades of work to undo that. And I share that because although it's not as pernicious as it once might have been or as obvious, the numbers reveal something. The numbers you went over, the numbers I shared in that writing based on research by amazing nonprofits, HRC and, and others, the numbers that I reveal in that are uh, the canary in the coal mine, we have to realize that there are unique needs in this population for them to come out the other end of the systems that we have created. And it's not enough to not discriminate. We have to affirmatively approach this population. Why are 30% of kids in foster care identifying as queer? What is going on in our society that's putting these kids in a system that is meant for kids that cannot be cared for or are uncared for? That's, that is a symptom of the larger discrimination that we still face in this country, that the children are like that and suffering thusly. We can do better. And so how are we collectively in each corner of this country asking ourselves, what are we doing to make sure these kids are not just not abused, but affirmatively taught and loved and lifted up to reach their full potential so that they don't have to use the decades of work that I've had to do to undo that damage? Um, I think it's, it's a call to action, really. We need people in every corner, no matter what your sexual orientation, to ask their local leaders, what is going on? What can I do to help these kids? How much of that sentiment was responsible for you going to law school? You know, um, when, I, when I was, I don't know what age, between four and seven, we were living at Grand Central, and I used to beg. We all begged. And... 
a good time to beg was the morning rush hour. And we would deploy across the concourse as the morning commuters came off different lines. And I would beg at the entrance of Metro North, which, which served Westchester up to Albany. And I remember one very vivid moment where up ahead of me on a packed concourse, four feet ahead of me, the wall of navy blue suits parted four feet and then came behind me. None of them looked at me. And this was a packed concourse. There wasn't space to, to avoid me, but they managed it. And none of them were looking at me. And I had my hands out and I was asking, sir, please. And what I realized in that moment was I was not part of this world. I was invisible. And I think of it now as something like the matrix, excuse me, the matrix, that my family was not plugged in, that we were outside of this polite world. And therefore, it was both a challenge and a blessing because we could write our own rules. So what I realized was the matrix, and I didn't have the language as a child, obviously, but I realized that the matrix was the law. Over the course of my life, I was casually placed here, left there, um, left to fend on our own, faced discrimination in a number of different facets of my identity, all based on this matrix called the law. And when I was growing up, I wanted to have, I wanted to understand it. I wanted to speak it. I wanted to shape it and I realized I could, but first I had to become fluent in it. And that to me was very clearly the law. And so I had an early desire to become what I understood from my mother to be a lawyer so that I could help shape and write it. So my family wouldn't be thrown onto the street out of a shelter or a slum apartment or abused in foster care. I thought, gosh, if I can write this, I understood how to write this. If I understood how to marshal it, I could do anything. And so from an early age, I wanted to do it. As I got older, I understood more clearly how to harness that as a tool. And I have both my education and my advocacy have relied on my legal background. When did you get into the work of corporate social responsibility and community engagement, uh, whether with Walt Disney Television or now? now with Amazon. And how did that come about? I'm guessing that your um, your resume beyond your college and law school looked pretty different <laughs> than the resumes they usually see. Well, first, I, I didn't really even know this was a career. And that's really kind of a, I would, you know, a, a not so benign cancer in our in our poverty community. We're not exposed to careers or opportunities where we think, as, as many foster youth do, of police and fire and, and social workers and judges, we don't really think of the plethora of jobs and careers and entrepreneurial things that one might do, which better align with our, our internal um, voice and passion. And I had no idea this was a career. And so as I went out to become a baby lawyer and out into the world, I realized very quickly that I was not designed to be a corporate lawyer, that I was not designed to be a prosecutor, that I was not designed to be a clerk at a court. I learned that I wanted to do something that aligned my values and my fundamental belief that my survival was an aberration. And I didn't like that. And I wanted other kids to not have that odds. And I couldn't figure out how to blend the two in a way that helped me achieve financial security and also impact. And so I went to work at different jobs. I tried a bunch of different things. And one thing I did, I, I landed at LA City College, a community college, where I started the first Guardian Scholars program at a community college. 
uh, at scale. And we started, we started really achieving great numbers on success for foster kids at this almost 20,000 person university. And in that work, I got to know uh, folks in the entertainment community because the Cinematech vocational program at the college meant that I have to go fundraise from these institutions. And in those relationships, I got to know people better and better and better in the entertainment industry. And I realized something. I realized that our values as manifested in my childhood come from different sources, family, education, religion, but they also come from content, entertainment. And I wanted to help shape that. And I've, I realized very quickly that the largest factory of values globally was the Walt Disney Company, a place that I had been an intern at, a place I had worked briefly. And I wanted to get back there in order to help shape that content. And I didn't quite know exactly how, but ultimately it led to a consultancy with their corporate impact department, corporate social responsibility, and then it led to a full-time position for, all, for more than a decade where I was able to help recreate, reinvent so instead of sending DVDs out to silent auctions, how do we change uh, the world using our superpower, which was storytelling? And I've been very proud of the, the work that I led there. And more recently, I've now joined Amazon in a very similar position, but distinct in that this company that I'm very proud to work at has different superpowers. And I'm still learning that. I've just begun uh, about a year ago. But after 10 years at Disney, I was able to launch a nonprofit that really focused on the portrayal of foster kids and content and, and try to rebrand it. So my nonprofits foster more. We have great PSAs. We have great guidelines for writers and producers. So instead of portraying every biological family as a failure or every social worker as a disaster or every foster kid as a problem to be solved, we want to complicate the picture and more accurately represent the community and invite more people to the party. And I was very proud to work with your organization during my time. We ran one of the largest hunger campaigns in America every year. And the reason we did that, the reason I started that across the Walt Disney Company was because of my own experience. So I was very proud of that work. We did it every year. And uh, Share Our Strength was one of our partners uh, alongside others. And I've actually brought, that was one of the first things I set up in my new role as well was a hunger campaign. So um, I was able to discover a career through relationships, pleasant persistence, and hustle. And I'm now living this impossible life where I'm paid every day by one of the most important, amazing companies in the world to essentially go do good. And I, I literally, I don't pinch myself because I like myself, but I theoretically pinch myself every day. And you should. And we've been so grateful for those partnerships. They've had a uh, played a, played a huge role, honestly, in uh, our ability to expand our efforts and reach more uh, vulnerable kids with uh, school meals, with SNAP, with WIC, with all of the the, the barriers that we try to knock down between uh, hungry kids and and healthy meals. Uh, let me ask you a question, both about Amazon and about Foster More. Uh, and it it sounds like a simple question, but you're going to immediately understand it to be a, a much more difficult one. And and the question would be uh, for your role at Amazon and for your uh, aspirations for foster more, what, what, what does success look like a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, what, what will you consider success to be? I think my work, my day-to-day -day work is not the most important ingredient of my impact. 
the most important thing I'm doing right now really is this memoir. I don't know what happened, but 10 years before I was born, we, we landed a person on the moon. And 10 years later, and now into my life, we're proud when we fill a pothole. I don't know what happened to our collective belief in each other and our collective belief as a society that we can do big things. We can. And so what I hope this book does and what I hope my, my pay job, my work, both at Amazon and uh, before at the Walt Disney Company, it's all part of a tapestry, which is to rekindle a belief in each other that we can collectivize and do great things together, including ending the scourge of hunger. No child in the United States of America should experience hunger. And I'm always struck when we look at the statistics for free lunches at schools, because it's something we don't talk about, which is not just that those kids are experiencing hunger. What are their parents eating? What are the families eating? We have a hunger crisis, and it's affecting kids' ability to learn, their parents' ability to do just basic tasks of taking care of each other and themselves. And so I think my work is not just in my pay job. What does success look like to me? It is hopefully this book and my day-to-day -day work and my volunteerism and my policy advocacy transform us to remember our somewhat atrophied muscle, which is we can do big things, y'all. We can do big things. We've halved the number of kids living in poverty in my lifetime. Halved. We can do that again, faster. And we could end hunger in this country. It's a decision we make every day not to, and we need to stop it. And so my work during my job, but also more, more importantly with this memoir and my policy advocacy, and the sheer impossibility of my, my actual existence is, is hopefully going to rekindle folks to believe, and, and not just as individuals, we have to work together. And the way that we work together is through organizations like yours, but also through government. We denigrate and hollow out our government, and then we're shocked when it can't achieve a mission to the moon. We need to recommit to our ability to work together through nonprofits, but also through government to do these big things, because there's no other mechanism to do it. We can't individually end these scourges of hunger and homelessness and mental health. We need to work together. And that can be through nonprofit or government. Both are so important in the answers that we're seeking. So my work, I look at more broadly, is not what I do day to day, but my mission overall. And the most important thing I think I'll do, aside from be a father, is to do this work is my memoir, which is to share the most vulnerable parts that I've almost never spoken about to not just make people quiver, but to make people feel and go along this journey with this family and the grind of poverty that they experience. I'll tell one story apropos maybe of nothing, but I remember when we used to get food stamps back before they were uh, cards, debit cards, and you used to get these things that were kind of m monopoly money. They looked like, and on the back of it was this admonition from the government not to overeat, but to wait for your body to feel hungry as if poor people don't know. And I remember looking at the back of it and I thought, F you, every month we ran out before two weeks and we'd have to pick out of the trash and go to free food kitchens. And I remember thinking, F you, like who is this government in the eighties that is telling me not to overeat on their meager crumbs. How dare you? 
And that government is us. We are the government. We are our own government. Every one of us listening to this and those that don't. So I believe so strongly that my work is to make sure that those things don't happen to the next generation of kids. Well, I was um, really gratified as I got towards the end of your book um, to see kind of almost like the call to action uh, that you described. You And, you know, we think of hunger as a symptom of a set of deeper issues related to poverty. And one of the things you say in the afterword, and I'll just, I'll just read this paragraph, is that poverty is never about the future. The poor are consumed with the now as they must be to survive. Poverty is passed down from generation to generation. And according to studies of intergenerational poverty done by the National Center for Children in Poverty, of the children who spend at least 50% of their childhood in poverty, nearly half of them will be poor at age 35. When a child comes into our custody, quote, our being the custody of the state, it is our chance to intervene with powerful strategies to arrest the cycles of poverty, violence, and all the ensuing misery, but we fail. As you can see from my story, the system is current as it currently stands doesn't do right by children, but it could, end quote. So um, it, 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 it really, I feel like your, you know, your book is intensely personal and intensely intimate throughout almost all of it. But you also have this uh, ability to kind of pull back the lens and help us see the the larger system uh, at play here. And, you know, and you're, you're too young to write only one memoir. You're going to have to write another one. <laughs> it's funny you say that, um, you know, sharing so much as, as people do uh, <clears throat> has been both uh, emotionally daunting, but also so liberating to, to share these stories because folks, they know a little bit about me, my friends and my circles. But now I think they understand the fire. And I've thought a lot about what I share another story. And the one that, that is so close to my heart is my mom's. And, um, you know, the way and the struggle of mental health in our country and how it intersects with so many of the scourges that we face collectively and how, how we really, really need to develop a deeper empathy for people like my mom. So that, that I, I've thought a lot about that. And just as a kind of aside for yourself, because of your incredible work that I probably benefited from, um, the original, one of the titles of the book that I, you know, I went through a number of them was actually hunger. And it was the hunger as we might understand it, you know, the need for food, but something more deeply. And I think it is uh, an important and vital topic that's intersected throughout my stories, hunger for visibility, hunger for care, a hunger for a society that did not allow millions of children every year to cycle through the system. And that's why I opened the book the way I do with that sentence, I'm hungry, because it was a hunger for shelter. It was a hunger for food. It was a hunger for help for my mother, hunger for so much, but at its core, you can't think, you can't do, you can't act if you don't have calories. And so this scourge of hunger in our country is so vital. And I'm so honored to talk to someone like yourself who has made a damn big dent in it. And I, I hope to do similar work in my life. Well, we, we've all still got a long ways to go, but I feel so many connection points with you, David, and with what you write um, and, you know, a chair of strength. I'm going to, I'm going to read one more, one last paragraph from your book, because a chair of strength, you know, our whole philosophy is that everybody has a strength to share. Everybody has something to give. And, and you, you make a call to action uh, near the very end of your book about the role that 
foster parents, diverse foster parents can play. And you say, quote, great and diverse foster parents are at the, are the heart of a successful system. We need LGBTQ plus parents, single parents, married heterosexual couples, parents of different races and beliefs. Perhaps above all, we need to recruit more middle and upper income foster parents with higher education degrees. This effort is not to displace, but to add to and diversify the incredible commitment of lower economic classes who are already fostering. And I hope people read that and hear it because this is a way for people to make a difference. This is a way to share strength. And uh, if, if more people got engaged this way, uh, it could have such a powerful impact on the lives of our kids. Sure could. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thank you for understanding and so clearly getting the book. That's exactly right. And if folks can't foster, at the very least, learn. At the very least, ask your school how they integrate foster kids when they're moved in. At the very least, figure out in your community how homeless and foster kids are dealt with at the county or city or town level. At the very least, give a damn and start to educate yourself and dedicate an hour a month to children because we should. And the kids don't have a body. They don't have a political body. They don't vote. They don't have power. We are their power. So if you can't foster, I completely respect that. But what can you do? And that is the revolution I'm trying to spark, which is instead of saying, I can't because. What if we all said, I can't because, but I will do this. That is why I hope people look and figure out what they can do. And in particular for the kids that I care most about, which are those that are experiencing the things that I did. So thank you so much for, for getting it. Well, thank, thank you so much for being with us today, the place to start this education, to start this journey, to spark this revolution uh, is by picking up a copy of A Place Called Home. Uh, I'm calling it the first memoir of David Ambrose. Uh, I can't <laughs> wait uh, to both reread this and, and to read the next one, but it's a very important book. And uh, I think if more people read it, it will not only solve a lot of problems in our foster care system and in our homelessness uh, crisis, but uh, a lot of other social injustices that we face in this country. Uh, David, thanks for writing it, and especially thanks for being with us on Ad Passion and Stir. Ad, it's a real honor, and thank you for sharing your platform. Thank you. Please visit adpassionandstir.com. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share Ad Passion and Stir with a friend, and rate the show so that others can find it. Ad Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woody Whittle's team at District Productive and Johanna Weber of Pop and Awe with support from our team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. They include Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.